Well, it is the first Sunday of Lent, and it is quite the change of seasons. I think this is our coldest morning. Somehow that feels very fitting for Lent. I don't know why. Uh, you notice some of those strong thematic liturgical shifts uh, at the beginning of the service. Ooh, boy, how to look at that. Sorry. It's hard to adjust this thing when your hands are cold and wearing gloves. So. Those changes that you might have noticed, the penitential rite, how things shifted a bit, those are purposeful. They're supposed to attune us to this season that we're in. Now, a lot of can be said about Lent, but I told, talked a lot about Lent on Ash Wednesday, so I only want to briefly talk about the purpose of Lent uh, this morning, just really quick. I want you to think of your heart like it's a room, and it's one that is meant to house a very special guest. That guest is the Holy Spirit. Right? Your heart was designed to be his full-time residence. It's intended to be a hospitable and a suitable location for the Lord. So Lent is a time to clear away the clutter and the mess within your heart. It's a spiritual house cleaning, right? To make some more room so God can abide there more fully. Now, I know that's kind of campy to describe it that way. Uh, I'm not saying it's always comfortable or easy. It's not. It can be pretty intense. Uh, sometimes we're very content to keep uh, the house arranged just how we want it, right? Let me put it another way. And I talked about this on Ash Wednesday too. In Lent, we're trying to open our hands to the work of the Holy Spirit. We're trying to let go of those things that, that own us, let go of those things that burden us, um, let go of those things um, that inflict harm upon us, that weigh us down, the idols that we hold on to. Sin is a cancer after all. Let's remember that. We're trying to let go of that. And we're trying to do that so that God can fill our hands with the things of life. So the promise of Lent is this. The road of confession, repentance, forgiveness is actually a healing path. So have you ever heard someone talk about Lent in that way? It's healing. It is. The way some places in the New Testament speak of it, uh, confessing our sins is to be a healing thing. It's to be good for us. But initially, the experience of that, the dying to the old woman or the old man, right, that's still living in there, letting go of our junk, can feel like death, right? Might feel like entering the desert, might feel like entering the wilderness. And that is where we're going to shift and pivot to Mark 1, 9 through 13. Now, the gospel reading for the first Sunday of Lent is always, always, always the temptation of Jesus. It's a paramount story. It's a seminal story. Uh, our 40 days in Lent mirror Jesus's own 40-day journey into the wilderness. So we're following him into that wilderness, shadowing him, if you will. Thus, that serious and sobering tone of our liturgy that you heard in the exhortation. Pretty, pretty big stuff. It's not messing around. And I think the reason for that is that Jesus is preparing to do battle with the devil himself. So we're not messing around here. If we're going to shadow Jesus on this particular journey, if we're going to follow him into the wilderness, there's a sense of gravity to this. We're spiritually suiting up for the journey. So the road to the cross really begins in earnest in the wilderness. This is the first step heading towards Jerusalem. There's no shortcuts. There's, this is a do not pass go, do not collect $200 thing. Jesus will succeed or fail in his showdown with Satan in the wilderness. So Mark 1, 9 through 13, particularly just two verses, 12 and 13. I'm going to pull a little bit from Matthew 4 because Mark is so terse. This doesn't tell us a lot about the temptation. So I'm going to pull that in a little bit just to fill out the picture a bit. This, his temptation is hot on the heels of his baptism. Not unlike Israel crossing the Red Sea en route to the Promised Land, which was a baptism of their own. 
So as we encounter the temptation of Jesus, consider the irony of what came just before it. Here's what came just immediately before it. The word of God's the Father in his baptism. This is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. And next thing we know, we're headed to the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. If I'm in Jesus' shoes, uh, I'm not feeling the love in that particular moment. But this is how God operates. And I want to talk a bit about that. The Holy Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness is how the text reads. And a lot of what happens in Mark happens immediately. That's just kind of a mainstay word in Mark's recollections. Things happen uh, quickly and one on top of the other. When he tells the story of Jesus, it's often terse and it's urgent. It lurches from one dramatic scene uh, to the next. Now, saying the Holy Spirit drove Jesus out is not to suggest Jesus was unwilling here. Okay? He's not being flogged to go out into the wilderness. That's not it. The stress here is upon the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the point. Very much in an Old Testament sense, like we see in passages like Micah 3.8, Jesus is compelled to go into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit puts a mighty fire in his belly. So it's something he must do. He must do it. So the Holy Spirit compels him to be tempted. Now, it can feel more comfortable to speak of even our own trials and testings and temptations as something that God, you know, God allows that. God permits that. Um, and there's some truth to that, sure. But in this case, I don't think that's accurate. That's just too passive. It's like it's divine happenstance. Well, God just kind of allowed that. No, the Holy Spirit compels Jesus to be tempted. Now, Deuteronomy 8, 2 and 16, God speaks of actively using Israel's wilderness experience to, and here's the quote, find out what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep my commandments. Find out what was in your heart, whether or not you keep my commandments. This was how God spoke of using their wilderness experience. So what does it mean for God to intentionally lead you into calamity? <laughs> to deliberately allow you to be tested and tempted. Uh, this is different than when we paint ourselves into a corner, when we make foolish decisions or sin. That's different. This is rather to find out what is in our hearts to see if we'll keep his commandments. It's deliberate. So God's goal being to ultimately strengthen, purify our faith and our resolve. That's the point. So can we conceive of testing and trials as a sign of God's love for us? Yes, we can. That's why I think it's not so ironic what he says before the temptations. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased, who I love. He's beloved. And then comes this story. The Holy Spirit driving Jesus to be tempted. Where? You know where. I talk about this place a lot. The wilderness. Unsurprisingly, place, this is a place that has a lot of uh, strong meaning in the Old Testament. It's where many of the Old Testament prophets got their call, where God gave them revelation in that desert environment, far removed from civilization, very isolated place. The wilderness is a lonely place. It is a desolate place, and it is, yes, a dangerous place. It's a place of scarcity. It's not easy to find food and water in the wilderness. It's a place of deprivation. It is also a dangerous place. Uh, like the sea, this was a place the ancients feared. They weren't a fan of this. You didn't want to be caught after dark in the wilderness. You didn't really want to travel through the wilderness. This was a refuge and a hiding place for bandits and criminals and outlaws. Dangerous animals were there. It's alluded to in verse 13, wild animals. It was thought to be a place where demons and evil spirits dwell. So it's an unsafe place. It's a scary place. You don't want to be in the wilderness. 
Many of the desert fathers, they spoke of wrestling their own demons in the wilderness. Now, biblically speaking, the wilderness is a place of preparation and testing, but it is not without hope. It's a place of waiting. It's a place to see what might the Lord do next. It's a place where we learn to trust in the Lord more deeply. So it is a place of growth, but it is growth through adversity, right? Good Linton connection there. So here's our Lord Jesus driven into the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, into the wilderness to do what? What's he out there to do? You know the answer. What's happening in the wilderness? Why is he there? He's to be tempted. That's right. To be tempted or tested by the devil himself. I mean, <laughs> this is not, this is looking worse by the moment. If you don't know anything about this story, it's like, oh my goodness, this is terrible. Jesus must first face down the devil. He must allow himself to be sifted before his ministry as a Messiah begins in earnest. More on why that is later. The other gospel accounts like Matthew 4 tell us that he was there for 40 days and 40 nights, but he was fasting. 40, which I think you know this, being highly symbolic of Israel's own testing and trials and their 40 years in the wilderness, their wanderings. God's purposes for them during that time, again, purgation, uh, purification for them to emerge stronger, more faithful, more resolved to his purposes, to ready them to receive the promised land. They were the people they needed to be yet. So this is a maturation thing. There's some other kind of cool Old Testament connections here with Moses and Elijah. Elijah spent 40 days in the wilderness with the supernatural provision there in 1 Kings. Moses, 40 days and nights on Mount Sinai. Those are a bit more peripheral, though. I think the, this is mainly about Jesus' actions mirroring Israel's. Boy, i got to try to turn pages with these. i got to get some new gloves, y'all. Jesus is fasting. That's what Matthew tells us. Why is he fasting? Well, we're not told exactly. But I think the one thing we need to know is that fasting is worship. So Jesus is in the wilderness and he is worshiping. We don't know a lot about what he did for 40 days. Wouldn't you love to know? We don't know what happens for those 40 days until Satan arrives on the scene. But based off what we know of Jesus and who he is, we can safely assume he's communing with God the Father. Right? There's worship communion fasting that's what's going on and you better believe after these 40 days without food jesus is incredibly hungry he's profoundly weak and he is vulnerable it is at that moment when satan shows up how predictable and strategic the devil he knows our soft spots he comes in our vulnerable moments when we are hungry when we're desperate and when we are frail when we are most likely to believe that that desert mirage we see is actually reality. He conspires to work with our weakness, our self-deception, and our denial. He's a master of this, and he's predictable. We must remember that Jesus here is still subject to all the frailties of being fully human, right? This isn't just an easy cakewalk for him. His body, mind, and soul are profoundly weak here, right? We're embodied creatures, body, mind, soul, that all works together. So when your body's whacked out, your mind's not working so great. So he is incredibly frail and vulnerable here. Can't forget that. And let's remind ourselves of this. And I don't have an answer for this. What are the implications if he blows it? What happens to us if he succumbs to any of these temptations? All I know is it would be catastrophic. 
it would be cosmic. I'm not even sure what would become of our world if Jesus failed here. I don't know. Boggles my mind to think of it. Think of the high stakes. There are never higher stakes than this. I'm not going to delve fully into the three temptations here. That's frankly another sermon altogether and better suited for a different gospel reading than ours. But suffice it to say that what the devil offers to Jesus, they're truly enticing things and they would mess with your mind. They're real temptations. They're very real. Again, this isn't just a cakewalk, piece of cake for Jesus. They're grueling. Satan's attacks. Each temptation gets harder and more difficult. And he's testing Jesus' devotion to God the Father. It's all about what this is. He gives him an easy out at every single turn, trying to rupture the communion of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Will Jesus be the obedient son or not? That's part of what's going on here. Will he trust God in the long game? Or will he opt out for a more immediate fix? So they battle he and Satan, and they use the word of God. You know this. And as it turns out, guess what? Satan knows his Bible. No surprise. So briefly, the three temptations, which are not noted here. First temptation, Satan plays on Jesus' very real hunger, very predictable line of attack. Turn these stones into bread. Jesus answers, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Again, trying to rupture his trust and his obedience to God the Father. Second temptation, he questions whether or not God the Father will save Jesus if he throws himself down from this highest point of the temple. Right? Will Jesus test God the Father? Will he put the Lord God to his test or will he trust him? What he quotes back to Satan is, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Don't do it. Okay? Again, up the ante keeps getting up, then up, then up. Third temptation. And this feels a bit desperate and brash to me, but at this point, I guess Satan has nothing to lose. If you worship me, I'll, essentially he promises, promises Jesus some worldly power and, and prestige and glory. Now, this is a real temptation because Satan does have some control in these areas. He can deliver on this to a certain degree. Otherwise, it's not really a temptation. But this is brash and bold. I think it's a desperate last-ditch effort. I think it's a bit like saying, okay, you're, you're the Messiah, right? You, know, you came to, to reign and to rule, right? Well, following me has some perks. I can give you some power. Uh, you can have some of that power and influence right now. That's the temptation. Here's the issue. Satan offers Jesus a shortcut to glory, a path which bypasses the cross. Nope. Jesus came to serve, not to exalt himself. And he came to glorify and obey his Father. So he puts the kibosh on that, and he banishes Satan. Here's something really interesting about how every one of Jesus' responses in these temptations. They all come from Deuteronomy 6 through 8. Big deal. What does that mean? Great question. Here's why it's significant. That section of scripture is where Moses addresses Israel right before they go in the promised land. And he reminds them of their 40 years of wandering and begs them to be faithful. That's what he's pulling from. So how they were prepared to enter the promised land, educated, disciplined, learning to trust the Lord and obey the Lord, that was the point. And that's what Moses is trying to tell them in six through eight. And Jesus is pulling from that when he's addressing Satan. Here is the point. Jesus succeeds where Israel fails. He completes what they can't. So this story is about Jesus as the true Israel. This is the true Son of God, fulfilling God's redemptive purposes. Having been sent into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is tested by God the Father. He proves himself once again to be the true obedient Son. 
Again, this is one of those moments in Scripture. This is the full Trinitarian effort on display. All of God's work to save all of us. Stunning. So Jesus passes the temptation. Not without having given a pound of flesh to do it, but he passes with flying colors. He does what Israel fails to do in the wilderness. He still has to contend with the devil. It's still a real cost. It's not a cakewalk. He isn't spared that. And the devil retreats for the time being. And angels come and they minister to him. Okay. That's the story. What do I think God might be speaking to us in and through that? I'm going to give you three points. And then I'm going to give you some Lenten observations. And then we'll be done. We'll move forward. What might the Lord be teaching us here? First thing, the fact that Jesus was tempted and was tested reminds us of his love for us. Let me explain that. Jesus didn't have to do that. He didn't have to subject himself to that. He could have commanded it otherwise. He could have opted out. But he allowed, he submitted to the sifting of Satan. And it took him on a journey not unlike Job. Rough go. That's staggering. And he did it without sin. That's even more staggering. He had to take the path that others, Israel, had taken and failed. In order that he might cut a new trail in this wilderness on which we could follow. So this is the impassable wilderness that leads back home to God by way of the cross. This is where the path begins, right here. And he did what he did for us. He cuts a path that Israel could not cut for us. So that Jesus chose to do this out of love for you and I. Out of love. So that's the first thing I want you to catch. Second thing. And this is a harder one. This is harder to embrace, I find. Uh, Temptations and testing are preparation for deeper ministry. They aren't a distraction. They aren't a diversion. Sometimes they're the point. They may feel like it. (laughs) As I said before, Jesus' ministry begins in earnest after his testing and after his temptations. The wilderness and the desert is his proving ground. Now, humanly speaking, if I'm writing this story and Jesus is baptized, what really should follow it? Well, let's just start the ministry. He's baptized. God says, I'm pleased with him. Well, let's just go. It's not the way the story goes. God sometimes takes the long way around. Uh, here's, here's, Here's a little personal anecdote to prove it in case you don't believe me. I think you have your own anecdotes, too where God is taking you on the long path around to prepare you. Uh, My seminary journey began in 1999. I didn't get ordained until 2011. That's 12 long years. Painful years of further preparation. Not a path I would have chosen. Absolutely 100% necessary. The point. Oh, that we would lean into the temptation and testings that God ordains for us. We get ahead of God. We want to do ministry now, right? Fire, aim, ready syndrome. And yet God knows the preparation that we need. He knows that he needs to ready us and mature us to receive what's to come. But God knows the journey we're on. He knows what's needed at this next point. So he's going to get us ready. So the second piece, temptations and testings are preparation for deeper ministry. Let's receive them as as that rather than a diversion or distraction. They're not an (laughs) off-ramp. They're, we're on the road. I think that applies to us as a congregation now. We're read as a church. Third thing, what the Lord might be saying to us in and through this passage. When the Holy Spirit leads us out into our own wilderness, or drives us, if we prefer, we don't have to fear. 
We don't have to fear. When we go into the wilderness, we do not have to fear. And this goes back to my first point about Jesus loving us. Think of this, folks. There's no place that we can go that Jesus hasn't been already. There's no place. That's a great comfort to me. I'm not going someplace where God is not, where he's absent, where I'm on my own, where we're on our own. No, no. Jesus already redeemed the story of Israel's wilderness wanderings. He rebuked Satan with those specific Deuteronomy passages for a reason. He braved the wilderness. He walked in the places where they failed. So there's nowhere we can go that Jesus hasn't already been on our behalf. So we can have great comfort in that. We don't need to be fearful. In fact, we can be bold stepping out. Let me be more specific to Lent and give you, I hope we're two more uh, germane observations or exhortations and then we'll end here. For Lent, expect opposition from our three enemies. The world, the flesh, the devil. Just plan on it. It's expectant. Don't be surprised by it. I think God is up to good things here in our Lenten journey. Uh, but expect the siren call of the world beckoning you away from the ways of the cross. Expect pushback from your own flesh. I don't want to do this. And yes, expect the devil to try to spoil the good things that are happening in your and in our midst. Just expect it. As you've heard me quote over and over again from Luther, where God builds a church, the devil builds a chapel. Always. If God's doing a good work, Satan is right there trying to spoil it. So expect these things and suit up for battle. Think of suiting up during Lent. We're lean and mean, strong and disciplined. Uh, picture yourself as an athlete in training. So expect opposition from the world of flesh and the devil. That's my first uh, Lenten's sort of exhortation for you. Second thing, let the Holy Spirit drive you. And what I mean is this. Let him set the agenda for your Lenten journey. Let him set the agenda. You don't need to go seek out your own temptations and testing. <laughs> Trust me, you don't want to do that. Let the Holy Spirit guide your process of repentance during Lent. It will look different for all of us. Let the Holy Spirit set the agenda. Let Him drive you. Now, repentance gets a bad rap. I think it's often misunderstood during Lent. It's like, well, Lent's that time you give up stuff, right? But that giving up can be mechanical. It can be automatic. Uh, you know, you try to give up something out of discipline, sheer force of will, uh, but without really involving you, the Lord of your heart, right? It's just sort of an exercise of uh, tenacity. Or this giving up can focus up too much on the loss and the sacrifice. It can be dour, morose, dutiful, sort of that mortifying the flesh, the glories of self-flagellation. You know, you almost legitimize self-hatred here. Look, folks, let's keep in mind the redemptive trajectory here in God's heart. Let's not forget that we are emptying our hands of those sins, which are death to us, so that God can fill them with good things, kingdom things. So pray expectantly, expectantly ugh, I can't talk, to receive what's on the other side of the giving up. So let the Holy Spirit drive you. Let him set the agenda for your Lenten journey. Let him tell you what's, what you're to give up. I often enter Lent, I rarely know what God needs to deal with me on. I have to step in a week or two and then it becomes clear. And by the time that four or five, six week journey is over, by the time at Easter, it's, a, it's far more clear. So if you don't know what God has asked me to move into repentance wise, you're probably in good company. Let me end here. Be open to surprises because repentance doesn't always look like how you think. Repentance doesn't always look like how you think. Uh, let me give you an example. 
God might invite you to repent of being a workaholic. And he might ask you to embrace rest as a spiritual discipline. So you might be giving up work to embrace rest and slowness. How many of us think of repentance that way? Okay, it might be that. He might compel you to spend time just being with the Lord, just enjoying being in God's presence rather than busy yourself with constantly needing to do something for God. So that's the final thing I want to leave with this. Be open to surprises, how the Holy Spirit works. Repentance may look different than you think.